and welcome to the latest edition of Nursing Matters. My name is Rachel Hollis. I'm the chair of the RCN's Professional Nursing Committee, a children's cancer nurse, and I live in North Yorkshire. This week, we're welcoming a brand new co-host, Dr. Sue Haynes, who's the Assistant Director for Nursing in Nottingham and PNC member for the East Midlands. Hello, Sue. How and where are you? Hi, Rachel. Thank you. Yes, I'm fine. I'm here in Nottingham today and I'm delighted to be with you for this discussion. So the RCN recently launched its Education, Learning and Development Strategy and you took the lead on this for our Professional Nursing Committee. Why did you volunteer to do that and what are the most important elements of that strategy for our work? Well, yeah, thanks, Rachel. I I mean, I was a new member to the Professional Nursing Committee last year, representing our region of the East Midlands. And it was a real privilege, actually, and and a huge learning experience for me. And I particularly was interested in the education and learning strategy because I've got a real passion and within my core role, um, a responsibility for education and development of nursing. And across our integrated care system where I work in Nottingham and Nottinghamshire, We come together as stakeholders across nursing, health and social care, and everybody has got different views and insights into their educational needs, I suppose. I think it really does raise the voice of the importance of education, learning and development in the profession. And this is really critical to the retention of nurses and not just in the NHS, across health and social care and other independent and voluntary sectors. So I think this strategy is critical The collaboration that we all did was huge learning for me as well. And the fact that there's something in the strategy for everybody, I think, is important, particularly now in this context of recovery, restoration from COVID, where retention of our nursing staff is going to be of even more critical nature. And I think the RCM being able to take a lead on this with the strategy and now talking about a research strategy as well is really, really important for our profession. Thanks, Sue. And I think a couple of things you highlight there are things that we'll come back to as we talk today, particularly around sort of retention and supporting the nursing workforce. We are focusing on the nursing workforce, whether the profession is recruiting enough people, are we supporting them and education and and training are obviously key to that. And do we have the right approach to our, our nursing standards? We know that there are significant vacancies in nursing in all sectors across the UK, some sectors worse affected by it than others. And although the latest data from the Nursing and Periphery Council shows that the nursing workforce is growing, it's not growing fast enough as the number of nurses joining the register for the first time has fallen in the last year and more nurses are approaching retirement age. So how does that affect the provision of healthcare? Well, to discuss all of this, we've got a very special guest, Professor Jane Ball. Jane is Professor of Nursing Workforce Policy at Southampton University. Hello, Jane, and welcome to Nursing Matters. Hi there, Rachel, and hi, Sue. Hi. Jane, we're going to um, come to, on to talk about more about nursing workforce policy and, and your work, particularly on the relationship between nursing numbers and patient outcomes a little later in the podcast. But you're also involved in the Magnet Initiative and you're the principal investigator for Magnet for Europe. For those who don't know, what is the Magnet Initiative? So Magnet first started back in the 80s in the USA um, and the whole idea of Magnet was came from the fact that some hospitals seem to be much better than others at attracting and holding on to their nursing staff. And these were hospitals that had better reputations for care. And so they get, got called the Magnet Hospitals because of their, their ability to attract and retain people. And then 
out of that stemmed some research to, to explore, well, what is it about these hospitals that makes them better than others? Because this was at a time when there was a national shortage of nurses. So actually, it was it was strange that some hospitals were able to buck the trend. And that research identified some of the features that these hospitals had that the others didn't. And uh, they then used those findings. And it was to do with things like nursing leadership and some of the sort of fundamentals of how care was organised and, and nurses having a voice and a degree of autonomy over practice, these sorts of things, and, and how hospitals were staffed. So these sorts of factors were identified and then used as standards to say, well, actually, we could set these as a sort of quality standard and accredit hospitals that achieve these standards uh, and they would could be designated as magnet hospitals. And that was what then the uh, American Nursing Credentialing Centre did. They developed this accreditation. Nottingham is one of the first places to have gone for magnet and have been accredited in the UK. But we still have such little insight actually into how it works and how well it translates. So the idea of the Magnet for Europe study was with funding from the EU to do some research to really examine how well Magnet can be translated into a European context. So there's six different countries involved. Within England, we're we're looking at 14 different sites to compare how the intervention works. And so, so far, it's early days. So the study was uh, commissioned from January of of the previous year, uh, 2020. So we're still at an early phase, but we're just now collecting data from a baseline assessment. It's a four-year study, so we've still a long way to go before we get to the findings. But what has been exciting is just how enthusiastic hospitals in the UK have been about taking part in it. Let's start with the nursing workforce, recruiting the right people and keeping them in our profession. The latest report from the Nursing and Briefery Council on the number of nurses on its register shows the number of new people joining the NMC register for the first time is declining, with nearly 4,000 fewer first-time joiners this year, which could have major implications for healthcare provision. Sue, have you looked at the report from the NMC? and What does it show us about the nursing register? Yes, I think, I mean, of, of significant concern is obviously the reduced number of nurses registering for the first time um, on the register last year. On the context of a nursing shortage that we know stems back now with evidence for many years, this is a real concern to us. And the challenge for us at the moment really is that we still don't really know the impact now of the last year and of COVID on that retention and those figures now. So we don't know really. We know nurses are exhausted. We know there's increasing evidence of burnout. Uh, There's concerns about what now, how to face potentially another wave. It's clearly evident from the NMC uh, data that we need to be actively really working on retention at unprecedented levels, really. You know, it is changing people's perspectives of what they want from their career, whether they're thinking about actually taking retirement if they can. And and I think this is, um, it's a real critical focus for us all in nursing at at the moment. Jane, is there anything for you in the um, NMC report on, obviously this is going back kind of six six months, so beginning to see the impact of COVID, but not, not the full impact. Anything you see there in terms of kind of warning signs of where we are? Yeah, I think there's big warning signs there, but I think actually almost it's our nature, isn't it, to look at the latest data always and think about the latest signals. 
for me, the more troubling thing is that actually report after report and NMC data after NMC data, you know, over and over again, we've got the same pattern. It's not just a, so we are interested, aren't we, in, in what's happening right now, how is COVID impacting? But mm. even before we had COVID, we were desperately short of nurses and the systems we've got in place to try and make sure that the numbers that are in the system are sufficient were clearly failing. And that's why the uh, the government had to introduce that target to say, OK, well, we'll, we'll increase the number of nurses by 50,000 over the next five years. And the fact they actually had to sort of step in, really, and just uh, leapfrog over all the existing workforce planning that's that's in place and just cut through all of that to say, well, we realise that we've got an actual crisis. That just speaks volumes for me about how long-standing and, and sort of entrenched the problem is. But yeah, the latest report makes a worrying reading. We know that we don't have enough nurses to fill current vacancies, but what really is the impact of poor staffing levels on healthcare provision? It has an impact in so many different ways, but the most fundamental impact is that when there aren't enough nurses on duty, then literally patients don't get as much time, whether that be um, in the community or or in hospitals. So you you get less time, so less care gets delivered. So each sort of reduction in the amount of nursing presence means a reduction to what it is that patients get. And the research shows that that has then a very direct effect on the outcomes of patients. So when we look at mortality rates and we take into account case mixes so that we can adjust, so that we're comparing like with like, we see that actually in environments that have got lower staffing levels, lower registered nurse staffing levels, more patients die from what should be, you know, what are essentially avoidable causes, because that's death not by their condition, but that's deaths that have arisen because of the care they've received or not received. Of course, that's the most sort of extreme type of outcome. But we see across the research all sorts of different outcomes, be they uh, complications or pressure ulcers or risk of sepsis, all sorts of different things increase because essentially when there's fewer nurses, it's not just the, the amount of, of, sort of more transactional care, they're like the doing of things, but it's the fact that there is also less surveillance and monitoring happening. So that's then allows potentially patients to deteriorate and for that deterioration not to be picked up in time and for reaction not to have been uh, put in place. And then the other factor, I think, is that it's not just the impact directly on patients, but there's the indirect effect. Because when nurses can't deliver care the way they would like to, when they are compromising care every shift, that's really negative for morale. You don't go into nursing to cut corners and to deliver bad care and to walk away with that. So to keep on having staff in that position where they feel like they're they're compromising daily, that does have a very corrosive effect, I think, on nurses' own sense of pride and sense of satisfaction. And of course, then that has an effect on whether they want to stay in nursing, whether they want to stay in their job. So then there's the indirect effect as maybe more nurses become burnt out, more nurses just decide to vote with their feet and leave. So having that evidence 
out there and that research evidence, which, as you say, demonstrates the impact of staffing levels on patient outcomes. How can we use that evidence to really affect policy to make the changes that we need to see? I think this is one of the biggest challenges because, you know, your question, how can we use the evidence? Who is the we? So who is it that's going to use the evidence? And people like myself can generate research evidence, but ultimately people like myself and like uh, other researchers and, and obviously people like the Royal College of Nursing can very much broadcast and champion that research evidence to try and get it heard. But ultimately the using of it, that's a choice, isn't it? Whether people actually want to use that evidence and turn to it. I mean, the extent of the challenge came to a head with the when NICE, the, the body, that body that's got that responsibility for setting guidelines and working out cost effectiveness of, of different treatments on offer. When NICE was looking at uh, producing guidelines for safe staffing and was had been asked by the government, by the Department of Health to do that and was commissioned to do it, after it had produced its first set of guidance for adult nursing, it was then due to move on to produce other guidance for different sectors. So for community nursing, for mental health and so on. But the fact that then just as they were about to publish their guidance on staffing for A&E departments, they were told to stand down from producing those guidelines in a quite unprecedented situation. I don't think ever NICE has been told to stop producing a guideline when it's midway through. That, for me, spoke volumes about the fact that sometimes the system doesn't want to hear that it might need more nurses because there's going to be a need to invest in order to reap the benefits of better staffing. Do does this kind of resonate with you in your practice when thinking about both sort of recruitment and retention of of staff and also something about you know within your organization yeah when we're talking about research into workforce the work that Jane and colleagues do is so critical for us in practice because it enables us to really have evidence base to articulate from and to demonstrate impact of of nursing uh, as a, a patient sort of safety critical profession social care particularly you know have facing significant nursing shortages primary care, community nursing, learning disability nursing. We know that um, across systems and across the country, we do need further research into these areas to look at recruitment and retention and and really to articulate the impact and safe levels of care for the patients, not just when they're in hospital, but actually when they're most, obviously a large percentage of nurses don't actually work within a hospital setting. And, And I'm privileged to work with a lot of colleagues now across social care within our system. And, you know, the shortages of staffing face there are, are significant. I think recruitment, um, just uh, building a bit, you know, we obviously are looking at how to expand practice placement capacity and different ways of, of doing that across our systems as well as within organisations to try and support um, increased numbers of students, which is critical for domestic supply. Um, But this does take policy decisions at a national level, like like Jane's mentioned. It's not just about local organisations or or providers making small step changes. And then the other thing is um, healthcare assistants working in the UK who may already be internationally qualified as nurses. 
Now, that's been an area explored over the last year. It is a challenge for our international nurse colleagues with the OAT exams and the IELTS exams for the English language tests. But once those are passed, certainly we've been able to support, and I know a number of other provider organisations, support their healthcare assistants to progress through to then register, undertake OSCEs and register with the NMC. Small numbers at the moment, but it just opens up that diversity of routes. Because I think with the criticality of the situation we're facing, we have to have multiple and a range of supply routes. We can't be completely reliant on one or the other, because the situation warrants real focused attention. And obviously retention, things like late career, looking far more at late career nurses and thinking, you know, career aspirations, careers coaching and guidance, different ways to think about your career when you when you progress up to an, an age when you may be able to retire. We've been doing some more work with things like financial guidance and advice for nurses and at late career, helping people look at things like pensions, what that means, different ways of coming back to work, um, different careers, thinking of it as a new phase of a career, perhaps thinking about a different role in a different part of the system. So there's lots and lots of important things for us to focus on, right from the point of supply and really increasing that supply and the diversity of supply routes. And also retention. We've got to do things differently. It's really time for us to collectively and professionally sort of be that voice for nursing. And, you know, pay is important. Pay is on uh, people's minds at the moment for nurses. And that's right and proper. But it's not just about pay. The working conditions, the practice environment, how people feel valued and how they feel they belong and contribute as a professional is is uh, is a really of equal um, significance and importance. And I think that's what the research shows us. Sort of hearing from both of you that where retention is obviously really important, it's how we grow that domestic supply. And Jane, I think some of the things that Sue's been talking about were also some of the areas you looked at in the um, Health Foundation report around sort of graduate entry into nursing, looking at different routes into nursing. Absolutely. And actually, uh, it's interesting, though, listening to Sue, I'm very struck by how it feels like a classic kind of nurse response in that Sue shows so much creativity in her thinking. So faced with the challenge of not enough nurses, very much thinking, let's find ways around that. Let's use different routes. Let's think about different options. And, And that feels like a really classic nursing response and I think it serves uh, organizations well to have that kind of thinking within them but nonetheless the big most important route of supplying nurses into the system kind of remains providing education for nurses through universities so um, although it's great to increase the possibilities it actually contribute very small numbers some of those different more diverse routes one of the problems then is not just um, thinking about different types of routes, but actually getting with the, rid of the problems and the bottlenecks that are currently existing for undergraduate and graduate entry nurse programmes. And so that's why, I mean, obviously NMC have recently done uh, got their consultation to look at the different factors in nursing education and things like clinical placement hours. And actually, so in the UK, we, we ask our students and expect and require 
2,300 hours worth of practice to be undertaken as part of preparation to become a registered nurse, which is uh, far more than than other countries. So it's something like two or three times the amount in in the US or Australia or New Zealand. It's a very large uh, amount of hours. And that's potentially one of the problems is that we've got sort of a bottleneck in terms of how many people you can have on clinical placement. So that's one of our factors that limit how many uh, nurses we can train per year is the access to those clinical placements. But actually, do we really get, uh, are we really giving nursing students the the quality of education that's needed um, simply by ensuring such a high number of hours? Would it be better to have uh, a focus on fewer hours, but much more targeting the the quality of the educational experience and ensuring that the uh, different uh, competencies and learning outcomes are achieved? At a national policy level as well, I guess it's not just like what we do, but it's the fact that we don't necessarily know that much. And that reflects something about the lack of attention to nursing workforce, the lack of priority given to it. So something like, say, um, the the idea that actually graduate nurse entry, so having people who've already got a degree um, going into a shorter two-year course in order to become a registered nurse is such a fantastic idea. It seems to be very popular. And yet we have so little data on the numbers going in on how well that's working, how many people come out of it. And similarly, things like nursing associates, we have so little insight into how many want to carry on and do the conversion continuation, as it were, to continue their education to become a registered nurse. And the same with return to practice. There's no data available that you can identify to say how many nurses, having had a break, then return to practice. And for me, that limits us in terms of good quality workforce planning to actually really understand not just where we need different types of nurses, but also where the different supply is coming from and be able to have a much more accurate idea of of how well that supply can deliver on what we need. Talking about robust um, workforce planning, I think takes us to our new RCN nursing workforce standards, because this really is the first time that we've set out our expectations as a Royal College for nursing workforce planning and workforce accountability in all care settings. The standards really aim to set out a national blueprint for what all care providers should achieve to provide nursing care safely in any context and across the whole of the UK. So, Sue, this has been a big bit of work for the Professional Nursing Committee, working with our colleagues in the nursing department. Why have we all worked so hard on these standards and what are our expectations as to how they can be used? I think, I mean, the the workforce standards for the Professional Nursing Committee sort of cut across all sectors and settings, don't they, Rachel? And I think that's been really, really important as as, as a professional uh, debate, discussion, getting to the point of the standards where they are now to be inclusive has been really, really important for the Professional Nursing Committee. And I think we we would acknowledge that, you know, they don't necessarily have anything new. They are bringing together, though, the evidence into a format that they are they haven't been presented before. And actually, that, that sort of collective voice of nursing, which is so, so important for our profession, um, and really emphasising nurses as the safety critical profession, uh, a safety critical profession in the workforce. So across all sectors is really helpful because 
sometimes um, when things and guidelines and standards are targeted at individual sectors, then, you know, that then people get broken off into different silos. Uh, and actually, as a nursing workforce, we can all assess where we are against these standards, whatever the sector we're in, whatever our profession, whether we're, you know, whether we're, a, if we're a registered nurse or we're, or we're leading a registered ser- a service with registered nurses in, because of the length of time it took to get to there. There's been very robust debate and consultation. I'm hopeful and really hoping that it will initiate sort of joint conversations. We obviously as a committee want these to be sort of lived, actively utilised and beneficial for staff, for patients, really. And then therefore, I suppose it's now all of us on the committee and, and, and now they've been cascaded and launched, looking at how best to engage staff in that debate, engage nurses, engage managers and the whole of organisations really in in how to actually bring these to life in practice. But I feel very positive about the fact that they are applied across all settings and it would be so interesting now to see how we can actually have those conversations collaboratively. Jane, you've been involved at some different stages of the development of the standards and you've written recently that the pandemic has, has shown that having sufficient nurse staffing isn't a nursing issue only. And I think we've talked about that this afternoon. It's a health service issue. So we need to influence both policymakers and healthcare providers to adopt these standards. How do you think we can make that happen? Getting nurse staffing right isn't just a nursing issue. It's It really is so vital that it's understood that nursing is the ingredient that's needed to get health service right. So if you don't get the nurse staffing right, you're not going to get your health services delivered to the quality and standard that you want. So it's trying to engage the wider world. And that's that's everyone from sort of next door neighbours through to the prime minister (laughs) at every level in understanding that having good quality nursing care is is essential. Therefore, you need to make sure that these sorts of what really are quite basic standards, it, it almost shouldn't be have to be said that actually a chief nurse should be fully involved and their expertise should be fully utilised in deciding what nurse staffing should be. And it shouldn't have to be stated that it's important that nurses who are working potentially 12, 13-hour shifts have some time in breaks uh, in order to make sure they are able to concentrate and function at their best. Those things shouldn't need to be stated, but the fact is they do need to be stated because they do get neglected. That's why I think the the standards are, are so important, but it's how we now hold everyone to account in terms of looking at how well people are delivering against those standards and thinking what is needed in order to ensure things can be delivered to those standards, some of which can be done locally and, you know, very much needs the support and the enthusiasm and commitment of trust managers and nurse managers and staff. But some of this is going to need, as we've seen before with, with uh, in the wake of the Francis Inquiry and those safe staffing guidelines from NICE, and that work that said that actually, although boards wanted to invest in nursing, they understood the reason why it was important. They couldn't do it or they couldn't fill their posts because there weren't enough nurses in the system. So it's got to be understood at that most highest level that the nursing workforce isn't just a cost in terms of a budgetary thing, but it's a real asset. And investing in that asset 
means you can then deliver better quality services. And as that Lancet article recently showed, actually driving up nurse staffing levels means that you can start to save money in terms of not having as many readmissions, having shorter lengths of patient stay, having fewer complications. So you, you can actually make it a cost-effective choice, but it requires that vision and that, that commitment and that investment up front to be able to get the workforce in place and get these sorts of standards met. We're almost at the end of the podcast, and that means a question from one of our listeners. Remember, you can ask the panel anything. Just tweet your question to at the RCN with the hashtag Nursing Matters, and we'll pick one to ask. This time, a question from Joe from Durham, who wants to ask what we think of the evidence given by Dominic Cummings to the Health and Social Care and Science and Technology Committee this week. And I think for me personally, Joe, I think that we need to recognise that there are many agendas at play here, personal and political. But the evidence given by Mr Cummings contributes to the picture I think we already have of failures in, in planning, in decision making and in accountability in the management of the pandemic. And it brings into even sharper focus the need for an urgent and transparent public inquiry, something that the RCN, among many, many others, has been calling for. Sue, do you have anything to add on on that question? For me, you know, our focus is on what's the most important at the moment, which is nursing, getting nursing right, support for our nurses uh, to recover, to restore themselves following the last year. And I'm sure there'll be more evidence, more varying views articulated over the next coming weeks, which will uh, show what it will show. But I think focusing on nurses and nursing for the benefit of our patients is what's important at the moment. Jane, anything you'd want to add to that? I guess that we can, we know it's 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 very obvious that many uh, problems uh, and many mistakes were made in terms of how the initial and the ongoing responses to COVID were handled. The detail of exactly who should have done what when and uh, so on that's that's certainly not something I feel able to get into. But I think the important thing is that when we're is to not lose sight of the really big things here and and the big fundamentals actually of protecting people at work say and and what happened around that and uh the the size of the commitment that nurses have made in the last year as they've uh been going through covid and the fact that this does put an immense pressure on what was already a fragile system and on a workforce that was already pushed and and already under strain And that's the end of the podcast. Thanks to our special guest, Professor Jane Ball. Thank you, Jane. My pleasure. And to Dr. Sue Haynes for co-hosting. Thank you. We'll be back in two weeks' time. So remember to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got time, give us a nice positive review on Apple Podcasts, because that's a good way to spread the word about Nursing Matters. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And we'll see you next time.